If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, I want you to meet Rachel Carlson, co-founder and CEO of Guild Education, a company that is unlocking opportunity for America's workforce through education and upskilling. Rachel founded Guild Education in 2015 and has since scaled the business to reach over 4 million eligible workers. Guild Education, which is a certified B corporation, just announced its new raise of $150 million in the Series E and is now valued at almost $4 billion. Rachel has been honored on the Forbes Cloud 100 list and was named the top women-owned company of the year by the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. Before founding Guild, Rachel was CEO of Student Blueprint and worked for the 2008 Obama campaign before serving in the Obama White House. Rachel holds an MBA from Stanford Graduate of Business School, as well as an MA in Education and a BA in Political Science from Stanford University. Let's welcome Rachel. Rachel, I'm so happy to have you here today. Um, let's just go into first things first. What is Guild Education in your own words? And walk us through the beginning story in as much emotional detail as you can. Sure. So Guild is an organization that's on a mission to unlock economic opportunity for America's workforce. And we do that through education and upskilling. And that gets right to the heart of the origin story. I have a personal and professional connection to what we do at Guild. Personally, I like to joke that my family is essentially an A-B test of the value of affordable education. On that dimension, my dad's one of seven. Um, his dad was first from a rural depression, Colorado, Kansas border town to go to college. But that wasn't so unique for a white rural guy making his way out of the farm town into the Aggie school, as he calls it. He went to one of the agricultural schools, but he fell in love with learning and you know, had the Air Force ultimately pay for him to go to law school. He even went to divinity school because he just heard it was the best place to sharpen your mind was to work with these professors at Yale. So like the guy fell in love with learning. And then my grandfather was, you know, really fortunate. He, he'll tell you it's better to be lucky than good, but he paid for a bunch of his kids to go to college debt-free and then ultimately saved for all 22 of us grandkids to go to college debt-free. And that changed my life. Um, it's why I was able to start a company in my 20s. It's why I was able to start a family at the end of my 20s as I wanted to. And I, I was able to make, you know, risky and, and really rewarding decisions because I didn't have college debt. But on my mom's side of the family, um, my mom's one of nine, and my uh, she's the youngest, and only one of her siblings went immediately to college. Most of the others did some education or some trades, but it didn't really make a difference. They were all able to build middle-class careers. That wasn't the case for my cousins on that side. I have 21 cousins on that side. And the difference, it's all been about whether we did or didn't have affordable education. So like that's my, my personal why, and I can say more about Guild, but that's the... That's why I do what I do. For everybody out there listening, let's just pretend that they are using Guild Education. What does that look like? What does it look like for, for your customers? Yeah, so if you worked at Chipotle 
and you were on the burrito line or uh, a chef in the kitchen, you would have access to use Guild's Learning Marketplace as a Chipotle employee to go back to school debt-free. That could include a bachelor's degree. It could include high school completion. 20% of our students, though they don't often tell their employers, haven't completed high school. It could mean um, learning a technical skill or a trade. But the, the way you do it is you've got access to our learning marketplace and our platform. It's a very digital experience like any other marketplace. But at every interval, the first time you hit our site to your last day of school, you have a coach and advisor working with you from Guild at every step, helping you figure out what classes should I take? How do I map this to my career goals? How do I balance school and work and family and the complexity of being a 32-year-old learner going back to school the way our average student is? So it's a really integrated student experience, but it's oriented around the you know American workforce, the 100 million plus folks who are going to need to reskill and upskill in order to have a great job in the future. And it's paid for by employers who uh, have a lot of good reasons that I can say more about, but have decided to invest in their employees' education and upskill. Tell us how Guild works for one of your Fortune 100 partners, like the Chipotle's, the Walmart, the Disney. How does Guild fit into their talent strategy? It seems obvious to me, but I would love just to hear, you know, how do you get them to say, yes, I'd like to opt in for this? Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, we, we view the employer as really a partner of ours finding what is the talent strategy that they care most about and aligning education and upskilling because it's multifaceted. There are employers who right now in this war for talent are dying to recruit high quality candidates who will not only show up for the interview, but show up for work every day on time and stay with the company for more than three or six months. An upskilling benefit has been proven to increase your high quality job application group by 25% or more. And so it's a really compelling way to attract great talent to join your company. It also has huge retention outcomes. So we found that our companies often see a, about a 2x improvement from call it a 50% annual retention rate to the low 90s for employees who use this benefit, right? Like, and it makes sense, right? Why would I, if I work at one company and I'm thinking about doing the same job at another company, why would I leave if this one company is helping me pursue my career goals and go back to school and keeping me out of debt? So that one's pretty obvious. And then when you think about the future of work, upskilling and promotion are huge. And so we have found that, you know, Chipotle is a great example. I was using there earlier, but the employee who is in that kitchen and takes one of Guild's programs has a 7.5x higher likelihood, 7.5x of being promoted on the job than his peer who same job just doesn't go back to school. And so you're talking about huge economic mobility, moving people into family sustaining middle-class wages. You can make six figures running a Chipotle restaurant. And you're doing that simply by providing affordable upskilling opportunities. Can we just quickly step back and say, what brings an employee to pursue learning on Guild? And specifically, what are the types of upskilling and reskilling programs that are most in demand? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question because COVID so intensely accelerated the future of work. Like it's here. It's not the future anymore. It has arrived. And, and we joke at Guild that we're back to the future. It's time for everybody to realize we're coming, we're here. There's an important conversation being had about wages in America right now for the entry-level role. I support those conversations. But the next step is what are all these folks going to do in five years when most of those $15 an hour jobs go away? And that's the scary truth no one wants to talk about. So we are helping people in warehouses learn how to not, you know, replace what the technology can't do, right? A lot of people in warehouses right now are picking. How do you actually 
work on the technology and repair the technology that's ultimately in five years going to do what you're doing on the job. We have 3 million cashiers in America, but 100 of America's leading companies are going cashierless right now as we speak, have a, ca a cashierless strategy. So how do we take those 3 million cashiers and help translate what is often one of their core competencies, which is customer service, into what America needs right now, which is bedside manner? allied nursing, healthcare, clinical. And so the skills we end up filling are, you know, cybersecurity and technology, of course, but those don't mean you start as an engineer. It means you're working your way up in IT specialist, cyber specialist, et cetera. And we talk a lot about gateway jobs and destination jobs. And then in healthcare, you've got the CNA and the healthcare steps that build towards nursing. You've also got the skilled trades. We have large programs with a number of partners like Lowe's, where we're helping take their cashiers or retail employees and help them become plumbers and electricians and carpenters. So it really spans the gamut, but it's changing really quickly and really dynamically. We've got a good idea on what the next 10 years look like. And then we're trying to figure out what the next 10 after that are going to look like. How did COVID change your business? How has your thinking evolved? And what happened in a way where you were able to now so confidently say, we are back to the future, we're living in the future, and COVID has dramatically accelerated all of this? It has been such a wild ride for us, both internally and externally. You know, we were the first company in Denver to send our employees home. We pay really close attention to what's going on in the labor market. And we talk to a lot of companies that are multinational and we're watching, you know, so this has been like a wave we've been riding, but it has been devastating. And then back to really enthusiastic because what happened this summer was we watched, you know, hundreds of thousands of the employees we support get laid off, get furloughed, have to figure out if their spouse was losing their job, could they make up the hours? It was so inspiring though, because we saw companies like Disney and others say, you know what? We're not only going to double down on this, we're going to say to our furloughed employees, now's the time to focus on your learning while we're furloughed and can't open the theme park. So we rode a deep emotional wave with all of our employees and the frontline workforce of America. If they were in healthcare or grocery, they were on the front lines. If they were in retail or hospitality or theme parks, they were home. So we had... Like, Name a population that was hit hardest by COVID, childcare workers, healthcare workers, like we work with them. So it was really, really complicated. Now we're in back in this crazy war for talent where all the companies that were, you know, trying to figure out how to make their way through furloughs and layoffs last summer are now hiring at a rate they've never hired at before, not only in terms of their frontline workforce, but also the skill, the middle skills roles where they're saying, oh my gosh, we don't have enough cyber specialists. We don't have enough warehouse managers, people managers, you name it. So we're constantly addressing all these multifaceted issues of what is now no longer a generational labor market, right? Like our parents live they had one career per generation. We now live in this labor market that is going to change every five years for everyone in it. Talk a little bit about the trends that you're seeing in addition to COVID that you're most focused on. 70% of U.S. companies are reporting labor shortages right now. That number is the highest it's been since the 70s. So you just got to settle into that. We are in like a 50-year scenario, but it is in stark contrast of last summer where there wasn't enough work for all the people who needed it. So one, it is just the, the pendulum is swinging faster and more intensely than ever before, but that's kind of the micro. On the macro level, we believe that half of all jobs in the U.S. are at significant risk of partial or full automation to the point where the person doing it will need to fully reskill or upskill, whether they're reskilling and upskilling to do a slightly different job or meaningfully different or a wholly entire another job in another industry. 
The really big problem about that is that the frontline workforce, the 80 million Americans without a college degree or skilled training are 4X more likely to be displaced in that trend. So you can talk about half, but then that group, the, the, the average American, not the white collar, not the person you went to graduate school with, not the person who lives in an urban center that might be listening to this, the average American is 4X more likely to be displaced. And so the, the challenge we then have is like, how are we possibly going to to realign to what we call a lifelong learning labor economy, where you help those people reskill and upskill every five years, which is what the, the half-life of a skill is now four and a half years. And so we're going to have to be providing people that. So I think the trend is deep, deep, deep labor shortage. We can talk about war for talent. We should talk about wages. But if we're looking five years on the horizon, automation is the trend we all need to be talking about. I want to um, spend a bit more time on something where you said the, we're having these overnight companies. In 50 years, companies have never been so thirsty for talent ever. What happens? What's driving that exactly? Is it because we're all digitizing? Is it because we're all shopping online and faster? What What is driving that? If you had to give us just some of the biggest insights that you know about. Yeah, so I'll admit I get a little bristly when I hear people talk about like the lazy person sitting on their couch collecting unemployment because like, yes, is there some population of people that you or I went to middle school with who are like still playing middle, who's still playing video games and like that exists, but that is not the core. I mean, you've got 2.5 million women who are out strictly because of childcare. It's a topic I'm really passionate about. We started our own daycare here at Guild, so I could wax philosophical about that, but we got to get those 2.5 million women back to work but we can't do that until we get their kids into a safe childcare or school. Next, you've got 3 million boomers who left the workforce unexpectedly in COVID and sort of feel like the workforce just passed them by. That as that, you know, COVID was a reason to take a step back, but then the digitization that is swooping in, you talk about those 3 million cashiers, there's a lot of overlap there. You talk about the truck drivers of America, a lot of boomer populations that are saying, you know what, I'm just going to retire early. That's not by choice. That's they, they feel a sense of necessity that they're not being engaged in a way to be do another five or 10 year sprint in this economy. So those are the populations I think about when I think about why we're in a war for talent. So I want to step back. You decided to build Guild as a for-profit company, but there's truly a social good that's underlying your work. And obviously everyone's getting a sense of who you are from even this conversation. You've helped prevent over half a billion dollars in student debt. You've done such a social good. Can you just talk a little bit about how you think about bringing your mission into the fabric of Guild every day? Yeah, I'm so proud of that number. And it is a testament to a really hard choice we made, actually. You mentioned that we chose to become a business. So when we were founding Guild, my co-founder and I were both straddling Stanford's Business School and the School of Education, both doing graduate degrees at both. And we had this plan for what is today Guild, but we had an offer from a philanthropic organization to fund it as a nonprofit. We had an offer to effectively sell it as like an aqua hire and join General Assembly, which was then the leading boot camp, or to fund it ourselves. The, the interesting scenario is, stating the obvious, the riskiest choice was to fund it with venture capital and impact investing funds. And it was, in fact, we got 5x less. We were offered $10 million to do this as a nonprofit and $2 million in seed capital to do it ourselves. But the reason, and, and I'm so grateful to my favorite professor who coached me through this, the reason we chose the impact, uh, social impact and social enterprise model was when I went to all three entities and said, what will success look like a year from now, three years from now? now and five years from now, 
when I asked the impact investors, they were like, sky's the limit. How many students do you want to serve? And it was about scale. And I had seen so many programs like this fail in local community colleges and local arenas or just be replicated with everyone having to rebuild the wheel and reinvent it in every city and town. Whereas to be candid, the nonprofit strategy, I was going to spend a lot of my time fundraising, like 50% of my time fundraising. Um, and so not doing the work that I get up every morning wanting to do. They also were more focused on very specific early stage KPIs that I didn't know if those were the right things to measure us on. I wanted to measure us on the student outcome and the scale, not these interim metrics around fundraising and press releases and et cetera. And so the best choice I ever made was choosing to have Guild be a B Corp, but I didn't know it at the time. My parents thought it was crazy. They were like, what? You're taking one fifth of the funding that you were offered? And so I'm just so grateful that the path we chose is why we're scaling. I believe we're, we're an example of where technology can be harnessed for good, but you have to put a ton of boundaries and a ton of alignment and infrastructure and really guardrails around yourself to do it well. And we've done that through being a B Corp and all of the commitments we've made there. I'm going to touch on this very quickly, but you recently closed $150 million Series E at almost a $4 billion valuation. What was your biggest, best insight on fundraising? All money is green, but not all advice is. And so spending time to get to know the partners, but I do believe you can do that in a concerted way because I did political fundraising early. I raised for Obama in 2008 and that's a full-time job and I didn't want fundraising to be my full-time job. So doing intense sprints and really getting to know potential board members and potential firms, but the same way you get to know candidates and really thinking about how do I want to surround myself and with what types of advice and then not getting too caught up in the valuation, like we've never optimized for valuation at Guild. We've optimized for who we bring around the table and do they believe in our double bottom line mission? And that has really paid off. You're sitting every day and you started talking about things that you can see five years out, automation, but let's go farther. Let's go 10 years out. Let's go maybe even 15. You have such a unique visibility into what's happening to the future of our education and labor markets. What predictions do you have that you have a little farther out that maybe other people can't see yet that you just think are fascinating that are coming our way. So one, I think we're going to finally eliminate the false choice between higher ed and workforce development. Like there's actually no difference in what you can learn. Some of the, the best people management I've ever seen in America happened in the back of a Chipotle. The best application of virtual reality after six years at Stanford, three degrees, best use I've ever seen was at a Walmart career academy. Like the, the distinction is going to eliminate what's going to matter is how do you stack the skills on top of each other? What do I learn at work? What do I learn in a classroom? And how do I stack that together in a way that creates signals that rival what is today the signal of the college degree? That said, I don't believe in what Peter Thiel says, and the college degree does matter today more than it ever has. So to be a little contrarian, like the college degree might be here to stay, and at the very least, it matters more than it ever has to low and middle income Americans today. What we're going to see over the next 10 to 15 years is a yes and to the degree to saying how else can we demonstrate signals and skills in ways that level the playing field for all Americans versus, you know, narrowing it in the admissions-based world, which today defines itself as who do I exclude from my school? It's going to be a conversation about who do you include in your learning environment. Um, those would be two of the big ones. I think the other thing is that career and, and, and the companies that build careers are going to become the defining companies of our generation. So there are a lot of companies who are like, come work here for three years and then we'll get you out before you, you know, 
want a promotion or join the union. The companies that say, no, we're going to help you build your career. And whether that is upward or work here for three years, but we're going to help you become a nurse or become a teacher or, you know, take on whatever next career you want. I think those will be the companies that are the defining ones for Gen Z and millennials and probably the generation to follow. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Rachel, I want to transition a little bit to you. What were, were you like growing up? Was it obvious to you that you would always be an entrepreneur? What did Rachel look like when she was a little girl? And when did you really maybe get a sense that you had this entrepreneurial bug? My mom kept my preschool report card and it basically says I'm a, a rebel with a cause and tells my mom to make sure it harnesses me towards good causes and not towards bad ones. And if you read my like teenage report card, there were a few bad ones in there getting in trouble, but mostly harnessed. That said, um, we didn't call it entrepreneurship in my family. We called it public service. Uh, most everyone in my family did entrepreneurial things, but many of them did it within the public sector at the either city and state level that we lived in, but often even at the national level. Um, so it was it was public service and doing big things. And then I found my way through spending enough time in San Francisco to finally learn what entrepreneurship was and figure out that maybe that was my calling. You started obviously Guild while you were at Stanford GSB, which we just heard about but you decided to move the company to Denver. Why did you make that move? And what are the benefits? What were the losses? What did you go through while thinking that about, about that big change? Two things. And one, I probably can now be more vocal about that. I was too afraid to be vocal about before Guild had kind of figured its way. One was I found the best talent here. Um, I wanted to move the company to Denver, but my board was nervous. They said, you're leaving Venice during the Renaissance. Um, I kid you not. That was 2015, right? You weren't supposed to leave San Francisco. Um, and so I posted my director of engineering role in Denver, San Francisco, and Palo Alto. And then I brought the blinded resumes with city obfuscated back to my board. And it was very clear that we should hire the director of Eng from Denver. She, Jess Russin, is now our CTO and she's mom. And so one, that was like a signal to me. And then two, I wanted to be a mom. And I, I knew it was going to be hard enough to raise a family while running a company that I hoped was going to be successful. We were only a few employees then, but we had some early signs of product market fit. And so Denver is a place where you can have ambitious family goals and ambitious careers. And I knew that because I had grown up here and watched other women struggle less than some of what I had seen in my 10 years in San Francisco. You spent a stint on the Obama campaign and in the political sphere. How has that helped you be a founder? Yeah, so much. You know, I never had a hyper growth tech experience. I worked in some tech companies, some that I would call kind of B pluses and the one that didn't work. Um, and you learn so much there. But what I learned from Obama is what hyperscale and success looks like. A political campaign goes from tens of employees to hundreds to thousands in a year. So when we talk about rapid scale and rapid growth in tech, it's nothing like what you do on a successful political campaign. And the reverse happens too. You can go from, you know, thousands to zero on election night on a primary where you lose. And I've luckily not been on one of those. So one, I learned what true insane human scale looks like. And two, 
Political campaigns have a maniacal shared vision on a single goal. There's a tunnel and there's a light and that light is election day. And there's such sense of purpose and that there's nothing I love more than working on a political campaign in that sense. And so a lot of my fire at Guild has been around creating that same sense of shared purpose and shared vision for our students. And, but what I like is that, you know, that the tunnel, we can keep making the tunnel longer by saying, okay, half a million, half a billion in debt, billion, what does it look like if we get to 10 billion? And that's really motivating for me. What would you say was the most surprising thing for you about being a founder? What's the thing that you weren't prepared for? What's the thing that caught you off guard? What was the thing that maybe was the hardest? What was that? So it came in 2020, right? Because who didn't have that moment? I have always had a lot of grit and persistence. And so I was like, yeah, Angela, I have learner's mindset. I have growth mindset. Like I got it. Angela Duckworth, check. I realized in early 2020, going through some of the hard things that we all went through as leaders that I had, I had it in some places, but I had given up on myself a little bit about whether I had it in me to be the leader for the next stage of company that Guild was walking into and breaking out of that fixed mindset and readopting a learner's mindset related to my ability to be a people leader for the next stage has been both like the greatest struggle and the greatest gift because it involved being really honest both like to myself and my team and then the company about my areas for personal development and growth that led to lots of people feeling like they had the freedom to do the same it had some cultural shifts in guild and has totally changed my mindset on how i want to keep building to be the ceo that guild needs and led to like great conversations with the board too. So it's, it was a real gift, but really hard. So what strikes me so obvious, you are charming, you are gritty, you are resilient, you are deeply committed, you're passionate, you're emotional, all the things I can see that make you such a firecracker of a leader. How do you handle stress? How do you stay sane? What, what, what are your tricks? Exec coaching and therapy, both. They're not the same and you should do both. And uh, you should ask your board to help pay for the exec coaching. And you should make sure your company's healthcare plan pays not only for your therapy, but all your employees. Um, so believe in that deeply. And for me, so that's like the framework. For me, figuring out what my tools are, um, I'm an external processor. And I realized with help from my coach that if I'm stressed about something and I try and stew on it by myself, it's, it's a spiral to the bottom on doomsday. Versus when I have a thought partner to think through it on. Um, and that doesn't mean it has to be all the same thought partners because part of our job as leaders is to absorb anxiety for our teams. But I basically think of my board and my executive team as my kitchen cabinet. And I know for which type of stress moments who I can call about what. But I have this little sign for myself where if I'm at a level eight, nine, and 10 on stress on something, I have to pick up the phone and call a thought partner. And I think through who I call. Okay, last little chapter of this interview, uh, quick fire round, I'm gonna ask you a question, you literally tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Pinch me moment so far at Guild Education, the thing that wowed you, what was it? Oh yeah, we planned a flash mob for one of our first graduates at his Chipotle. When he graduated, we showed up and had a whole flash mob and it was the best moment ever. What is your favorite interview question? What's their superpower? I used to believe in like too much of weakness-based correction, and now I believe only basically in strength-based management. But I'll tell you this, most men, like eight out of 10, I think, will answer multiple superpowers and only like one out of 10 women will say more than one superpower. So I always ask women to follow up with a couple more examples. What's your superpower? <laughs> um, mine is connecting dots and connecting humans. Okay, fast forward two years, how many days a week will we be in an office? Depends on whether we invent a better way to communicate than email or not. Assuming we do, we'll be in the office two days a week for meetings and team building and 
two plus on site with customers. First of all, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more about Guild Education or have your company bring Guild Education to their platform, please check out guildeducation.com and you can join us next week for Inc. the Founders Project with Alexa Von Cobalt. Let's end by thanking Rachel for not only the incredible work that you're doing, but we're all rooting for you. Thank you so much. We're rooting for you at Guild. Thanks, Alexa. This is so fun.